You're listening to this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters, a podcast about the personalities and events in the New South Wales Parliament here in Sydney with Alistair Hinskins. Well, this week on Macquarie Street Matters, we have none other than Dr. Justin Clancy, the member for Albury, who's our special guest, someone that's had a really interesting life uh, before they came into Parliament um, and someone that can give a really important regional perspective. Definitely. And he was a veterinarian, which I had no idea before this week's podcast. A man of many talents. He is. Um, and, and also a very, one of the more philosophical and, and thoughtful uh, people within Parliament. So I think that'll be really interesting. And then we'll have a political section and talk about what can be only described as the most bizarre and uh, action-filled last day of Parliament I've had in my nine years as a Member of Parliament. Well, this week on Macquarie Street Matters, uh, it's my great privilege to welcome the Member for Albury, uh, Dr Justin Clancy. Welcome to Macquarie Street Matters. Alistair, what an absolute pleasure. And can I say, you're looking this week, I don't know whether to say you're looking more youthful I think at the start of the week you were. I'll take but, that. Uh, I'll take that. But we've been uh, we've been this week uh, sitting till two a.m. one night, one thirty a.m. another night, which, which is interesting too because uh, you know we had that IR bill. So Labor has an IR bill that they only introduced to the House one week one week ago, uh, end of the year, and all of a sudden it's really important to get this bill out. But at the same time, so IR bill Tuesday night. Uh, but today I'm, I'm meant to be up on the floor debating a Labor motion. And the first part of that Labor motion is congratulating a school that opened in 1962. So anyway, uh, so I don't know whether to say you're looking youthful or looking a little bit uh, tired and haggard by the end <laughs> well, of the I week. Well, I think we're all a little bit tired uh, after the week we've speak just for had. Yourself, but but, but uh, I must say that... Uh, you know, in, in typical Clancy fashion, you know, I've hardly been able to get a word in on my own podcast from the, from the beginning. So <laughs> there might be word so, about so your words so anyway. No, I think this could be a little bit of a, a rough ride uh, at this Macquarie Street Manor. Look, great to have you. Um, Justin, you uh, came into Parliament at the 2019 election. Um, uh, you succeeded uh, uh, a really good Member of Parliament. Um, but I feel like you've settled in very quickly um, as a very good performer within Parliament. You now shadow uh, skills and training uh, minister. Uh, you can notice his chest puffs you were, out when he talks about you, that. As well, you know, that's, that's my old portfolio. But you, but you were also um, Parliamentary Secretary for Health prior to that. Um, and I know as a, as a veterinarian, uh, you've got a real interest in um, technology, um, medicine and, and um, obviously vet science and so on. But Justin... You grew up, um, um, and and can I make a confession, because of time pressures today, I haven't read through your inaugural speech, so I'm going off memory now, although I do remember that it was particularly lyrical at, uh, at certain points. But you grew up on a farm. Um, you, uh, you spoke very beautifully about your father, as I recall, in your inaugural speech. Uh, you went away to school in Sydney. Uh, you went to university in Sydney where you studied vet science and then you went back to uh, where you grew up uh, in Albury. Um, and you, you've been there ever since. You built a vet practice. So you're, um, you're, you're a bit unusual because, like me, you've, you've had a professional background before you've come into Parliament. Um, what made you want to go into Parliament when you've got a young family, 
Uh, you've got a successful vet practice. What, what made you want to become a Member of Parliament? May I stay start by saying, I, I was wondering where that, I thought that was a <laughs> barrister really laying out the platform there. And uh, But to, you, to your point, uh, I, I come from a non-political background, just a, just a family very much, as you said, off the land, but uh, uh, my parents uh, instilled a real sense of involvement in the community. And, and for me, that's, um, you know, that certainly rubbed off being involved in rugby club, uh, parish council, local, local rotary, uh, all of those organisations, and so I'm passionate about community, and I see politics as as a stepping stone in terms of that that community involvement. Um, so it that's is. that's where the passion. I is. must say that's very similar to me. I was involved in a whole lot of voluntary organisations, and yeah, it just seemed like the next. I thought step. you were going to say that you once saw a cow, and that was going to tie in <laughs> with your connection back to the land and things like that. No, no, no connection to the land. In fact, in fact, my family proudly, for many hundreds of years, have been urban dwellers. Well, at, at least on my Dutch side. In that sense, and, and that's one thing that I think the Liberal Party brings in that regard is that diversity of experience. And and then speaking for yourself, you know, as someone that comes from a law background, but but having served the, the law profession well in that regard, and and I think for me that's that's one thing I'm passionate about is is bringing people with diverse experiences into a place where you are making decisions uh, on behalf of of the community. And from my perspective, I know that growing up on the land has been a big part of, of my life uh, and my life experiences, uh, but also as a veterinarian and, and, and in particular as, as a business owner. Uh, I bought into my veterinary practice uh, in 2008 just as we went smack bang into the GFC. Uh, so I know what it's like uh, to be uh, you know, lying there awake uh, in the middle hours of the night uh, wondering about cash flow, wondering about how you can um, support your team uh, get through and, and, and the uncertainty uh, of those pressures. So um, that's a big part of my life. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a veterinarian. Uh, I was uh, literally called into the clinic the other week to say, to, to say g'day to the guys and ended up uh, doing, a, doing a surgery. So uh, for me, that's, that's a big part of who I am uh, and hopefully can bring that experience and insight into, into this place. Um, Justin, this place is full of lawyers. Some would say too many. Very few people with actually a scientific background like yours. Um, do sometimes you just scratch your head and think these people have absolutely no idea what they're talking about? Uh, look, for me actually, Alistair, and, and you mentioned the role of Parliamentary Secretary for Health. Uh, it is an area of absolute passion for me. And and it's one part of the privilege of this role too is, is the people you meet there's a lot of good people out there doing a lot of good things. Uh, in my current role uh, in terms of skills, TAFE and tertiary education, uh, I have seen you know, some of our local universities, what they are doing in research, and I know you would have seen that as well with, with the work that you were doing. Things like, and New South Wales, the previous government, what we were doing in, say, terms of funding towards RNA facilities, uh, you know, that medical research and where, where things are just over the horizon... And I, I think that's probably looking back one part of the last government is we probably didn't uh, you know, fly the flag about how much work was being done behind the scenes to support innovation, uh, manufacturing, science uh, across New South Wales. Well, one of the things that um, I chuckle about from time to time when I click on the news is um, the number, the Meadowbank TAFE which is part of our Institute of Applied Technology, which is a, a joint venture between TAFE, the uh, UTS, 
uh, Macquarie University, Microsoft, and now other companies like Canva and so on have come on board. Uh, the best cybersecurity facility in the nation, training facility, and so on. But uh, that was built without one cent of federal money. Uh, it was built um, entirely uh, on the initiative of the coalition after getting David Gonski and Peter Shergold to do a report on the future of vocational education. Yet Anthony Albanese, uh, a whole lot of Labor MPs, the current l state Labor uh, skills and training minister, at least for present, because we've already lost one since the election in um, in Tim Crackenthorpe referred to ICAC and sectors, skills and training minister. Um, they, they go to that facility, Chris Minns, they go to that facility regularly as if it was some sort of, you know, great labour initiative when, in fact, they didn't want institutes of applied technology. Um, they've, they've, in fact, um, not funded any new ones and yet they are quite happy to use our facility as a great showpiece whenever they want to do a media opportunity. Look, in that sense, Alistair, a couple of things there. First thing, uh, as you said, David Gonski, Peter Shergold. You know, several years ago, we embarked on a review of vocational education of TAFE in New South Wales. Uh, Preeminent, you know, uh, the, the uh, people to go to to seek for the advice in that regard put forward a strategy. Out of that, Institutes of Applied Technology were one of the key recommendations of that review. Uh, as you said, Chris Minns was there at Meadowbank just the other week, I think. So so was um, Albo. We've now got also uh, Brendan... O Every failed Labor leader wants to go there. Uh, on the Commonwealth level, we've got Brendan O'Connor down in South Australia talking up centres of excellence and how we need to do it. And yet there was the New South Wales Liberal National Government pretty much moving... Uh, on its own, uh, ahead in the vanguard on this mm. uh, several well, years ago. Well, sorry, the other the other great Labor lie is that you know Albo and Brendan Connor turned up to Meadowbank TAFE to give a great example of all these fee free TAFE places that they pretend that they've funded. We've had fee free uh, apprenticeships and traineeships in New South Wales since 2018 and 2020, respectively. So the federal government is not. Um, uh, providing free apprenticeships. The New South Wales government's been doing it since 2018, yet they pretend that somehow the federal government is doing this. Well, and now it's the reverse, where the Commonwealth is having to do the funding and uh, because we've actually seen in this budget cuts to operational and capital infrastructure, operational expenses, capital expenditure uh, for, for the year ahead. So their narrative continually when we're in government was that we're cutting TAFE as Minister, I delivered the two highest skills and training budgets ever in the history of New South Wales um, in our last two years of government. And what's Labor's response is to cut. Well, tell me, Alistair, what you, you'll tell me. What was, what was the proportion of the skills budget in New South Wales going to TAFE in the last budget? Uh, it, was, it was a bit over $2 billion out of a $3 billion plus budget. And as a percentage, I think it was... Uh, it was 74%. 74%. And Labor's commitment coming into government was that it was going to be? 70%. So their commitment was a cut to TAFE. This and, is and that's what we said, that they were going to cut TAFE. This is, this is the challenge that we are seeing in that regard, is uh, I suppose that sense of, of words and, and painting the picture to make it look like we are, you know, somehow that they are rebuilding TAFE. And at the same time, uh, we're actually seeing cuts uh, in and and this is this is the frustration for me is we have situations like the modern manufacturing uh, commissioner which is 
a, a recent appointment and again off the back of uh, the Tony Shepherd review into modern manufacturing. Uh, so we have got a modern manufacturing strategy, a modern manufacturing commissioner. Now, the modern manufacturing commissioner has had their uh, appointment concluded uh, as of the 1st of December. So they've sacked... Well, they've sacked the person that was to guide New South Wales in advanced manufacturing so that we could have um, um, uh, highly competitive, uh, technology-driven manufacturing. As you know, we have uh, over 250,000 manufacturing jobs in New South Wales, uh, which was the case under the coalition. So we've got a big manufacturing sector it's an international market, internationally competitive market. You've got to be up with technology. You've got to uh, automate. I went to uh, businesses um, where through robotics they actually employed more staff rather than less because they could grow their business. They were internationally competitive. They were exporting to the United States and so on. That's our model for future prosperity. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to use our highly skilled, highly educated workforce uh, to, to drive cutting-edge manufacturing. And Labor's answer to that is to cut the modern manufacturing commissioner and put nothing in place. And no plans moving forward in terms of the strategy. And yet the strategy, the groundwork, was already there. Yeah. This is this is the frustration. The other part for me is, so we've just been uh, just hearing uh, Labor spruiking and lauding uh, a 1,000 new apprentices over the next three years into the public service. Now, we will welcome apprentices and traineeships uh, any day of the week, except when it comes to the funding, uh, we have in-budget estimates, uh, Minister Wan saying, uh, I don't care where that funding comes from. But Alistair, that funding actually came out of the Future Economy Fund and you know as well as I do that that Future Economy Fund was set up to drive innovation and research in New South Wales. New industries, new jobs, better so, jobs. That was, that was what it was all about and to push us into, you know, we had a, uh, we had a whole innovation strategy um, which identified the areas of... Um, uh, comparative advantage in industries, which would be a um, an indicator where industry should invest, where we had expertise and opportunity, and there were a number of different industries, you know, biotech and so on, that were identified uh, within that strategy, um, and the and the future economy fund was to then push um, push you know chip manufacturing, so over ninety percent of the world's computer chips. Um, semiconductors uh, is the technical term, uh, which are critical to all electrical products, not just computers, by the way, semiconductors. Over 90% are manufactured in Taiwan. Now, you don't need to be an international export, expert to know that there are security threats to Taiwan. So the rest of the world needs to expand their semiconductor production. Um, that was one of the areas that we, we set up a semiconductor network um, for academics and others to for excellence in that area. Um, and we also uh, invested in the Advanced Manufacturing Research Facility out at the Bradfield, which was going to specialise in semiconductors. Um, so we, we had a clear vision. The real problem now is, is that vision going to be completely stymied 
by this underinvestment by Labor and this lack of vision by Labor. Well, we've effectively got the skills minister saying, I don't care that that funding has been pulled out of that uh, out of that fund. That was driving all of that innovation and that investment in innovation and research that you just mm. spoke of. Mm. I've been speaking to a, 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 the Indian business community and they keep telling us about the real opportunities that exist uh, between a relationship between Australia and India. We, we know that. We've got a strong diaspora in terms of uh, the Indian community here in Australia. Uh, they make a strong contribution to life here in Australia. Uh, there is much opportunity there. And they're telling us we need to be involved there, um, drive those links. And at the same time, and I know there's a political edge to it, but at the same time that New South Wales Labor pulls out the trade commissioners. So we are, we are reducing our connections uh, into... Uh, growing markets, uh, strong markets such as India, just at the same time that they are saying to us, we need to be reaching out. Well, when uh, when Chris Minns announced as a Labor policy prior to the election that they would pull out um, the um, the senior trade commissioners, um, uh, Daniel Andrews' response was, "That's great for Victoria." Absolutely. Because we we have regularly been outperformed by the other states in terms of their international engagement. Uh, we were rectifying that by investing heavily in uh, different trade offices in India and, and Europe and America uh, and, and Asia. And unfortunately, um, we're just giving up, uh, giving up the fight. Uh, I, I actually, um, uh, I, I believe also that once we announced, once the coalition announced the investment in those offices, the response from the other states was to actually increase their staff in, in, the, in their offices in the same locations. Literally just got asked this week, where is, Australia, where is New South Wales' um, business strategy when it comes to India? Uh, I've been advised that Queensland has one in place. Uh, here we are. We've got, uh, we don't have it. So, so we mm. have got, at this stage, a New South Wales government that is pulling funding out of industry, out of innovation research, uh, cuts to TAFE, but at the same time, when it comes to a modern manufacturing strategy, that's been stripped away with no modern manufacturing commissioner. Uh, and we're also losing our linkages uh, when it comes to our trade links uh, into strong economies such as India. Uh, you've got to wonder what that means. And this is the issue. We, we paint this veneer about rebuilding manufacturing and rebuilding TAFE. But what's actually happening behind the scenes is the exact reverse of it. Now, look, there are two things I want to talk to you about, Albury, because I think uh, it would be disrespectful if I didn't at least speak a little bit about your electorate. Now, I, I've had the opportunity to go to your electorate on a number of occasions. Unfortunately, my first visit, uh, you were um, struck down by COVID. You were stuck, struck down by COVID, which, which uh, meant that you were unable to, at first hand, um, witness the quite ironic... Uh, act of me uh, opening up a beauty um, section uh, Can you believe um, in, it, in your local TAFE, uh, which was which was one of those great moments in politics. You, you, you've um, you've continued to employ some of those tips <laughs> I see too, Alistair. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, Justin. So um, uh, unfortunately, you missed that. But what has struck me on the occasions that I've come to your electorate uh, is the incredibly diverse um, manufacturing. Uh, and, and very niche, internationally competitive manufacturing uh, that, that takes place uh, in the electorate of Albury. I think Albury, I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. Can I firstly say in that regard, uh, a shout-out to all of our regional centres. 
in New South Wales, we have a strong regional community, uh, not just Albury, but whether it be Wagga, Bathurst, Orange, Armidale, Tamworth. Uh, these, for me, this is the launching pad for New South Wales for the next 20, 30 years. You know, at the moment, again, we've got government talking about the challenges when it comes to housing, when it comes to uh, Sydney being full. But at the same time, there is a real opportunity to be turning to our regions and looking at how we can continue to leverage off their uh, strategic advantages uh, and driving them forward. You've, you've just anticipated my second point, which was actually about the capacity of regional areas to solve the housing affordability crisis within Sydney um, and more increasingly more Newcastle and Wollongong as well and the Central Coast. Um, you're absolutely right. So there are good jobs in the regions. The, the other thing that uh, Angus Taylor and I were talking about the other day uh, was actually prime industrial land in Sydney uh, is constantly being used now for further housing. And so the, the price of industrial land in our regional centres is so much cheaper than in Sydney that, that market forces would suggest that there are great opportunities in our regional centres. Uh, but you've got very estab well-established industries as well. That uh, business that I went to that, that makes the alternators for our, um, uh, for our military vehicles, um, you've got also the, the defence manufacturing Talus. Um, in uh, um, in Mulwala, in Mulwala. Look, a, a whole diverse range, and mm -hmm. and and again, this is the situation. For me, manufacturing means so much more than what New South Wales Labor is painting it to be at the moment. We have got from in Albury from Malibu jet ski boats, Chameleon trailers, uh, Australia Target systems, through to Corowa Whiskey uh, Distillery. Uh, now, yeah, the Corowa Whiskey Distillery. So, uh, but there's a great story there. So we've yeah. actually. They're at Corowa, uh, producing some of the world's finest whisky. In fact, they were one of two distilleries selected to present uh, for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. Uh, and so that's, that's impressive. That's amazing. They have also attracted there to Corowa one of Scotland's best coopers. So they're manufacturing uh, barrels, so cooperage. It sounds strange, but that, that is manufacturing. That is what happens when you enable SMEs to do the job. Yep. They get in, they, they are passionate about their field of manufacturing and they get on with the job and, and do that. So, uh, yeah, look, that's for me uh, certainly Albury from a manufacturing perspective uh, in between Albury, uh, between Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, uh, the, the strategic in terms of the freight, but at the same time, a place where you would want to have a family, uh, live, work and play. Uh, hour and a half from the snowfields, uh, less than an hour from uh, some brilliant wineries. Uh, why wouldn't you want to live in a regional centre? Um, you know, this is the opportunity that we should be exploring further. Well, Justin, uh, it's hard to fight against that logic and I feel as if you've given that pitch before. But um, I know you've got to go get away. Uh, can I thank you for joining me on Macquarie Street Matters? I think we need to do this again. Have a lovely Christmas to you and your family and thanks for being my guest. Well, Freya, I don't think I can remember a last day of Parliament in my nine years as a Member of Parliament quite like this year. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. We, we did a political section for our previous podcast which was recorded on the Wednesday, so the second last day. Mm -hmm. And look, most last days of Parliament 
are pretty quiet. There's a whole lot of Christmas felicitations. There's not usually a whole lot going through Parliament. But this year was something quite extraordinary. We had uh, the the hate speech, uh, incitement to violence, uh, Section 93Z of the Crimes Act bill uh, that was before Parliament. And uh, that bill um, was... Um, the first time, so so in the whole of this year, Labor have not lost a division. Mm. And so when that bill came in the lower house, we pointed out that there was a flaw in the bill and that was that it would allow people to have private criminal prosecutions. So yeah. the, the, the men's government had announced that they wanted to enable prosecutions to be commenced not only by the DPP who are currently in the legislation but also the police. And so instead of changing the bill to have the DPP and the police, they deleted the DPP, which meant that there was a provision of the Criminal Procedure Act that allowed private criminal prosecutions as well as the DPP and the police um, the, the section says unless you specify who can, who, who are the mm. limited people that can in, initiate a prosecution, then individuals can commence cri- private criminal prosecutions. It's Section 14 of the Criminal Procedure Act. So, so Labor botched it. We pointed that out. We, we actually went to them privately several days before it came on into Parliament and said... This is actually really important legislation at this moment with the tensions that are within our community because of the Middle Eastern war. We think that you made a mistake. Could you please look at this? And it was Chris Minns's call to not change it. Wow. So they wouldn't agree they they wouldn't we actually wanted them to change it we didn't want to make a political and song it's in and good dance faith. it was it's, in good faith it was right done privately um, but they said uh, came back 3 days or 2 days later and said no um, uh, after i kept following up uh, labor where are you on our on, on this amendment and so they disagree with it so then it went to the upper house and a majority of the upper house understood the common sense of our position, Mm. which was that if you allowed private criminal prosecutions for hate speech, that would allow people in the community who didn't want harmony to in fact weaponise the criminal law Mm. against groups that they didn't like. So legislation that was there to try and stamp out disharmony amongst different Mm. groups based on religion, um, ethnicity, um, you know, gender ident- identity. It's quite broad in terms of the, the categories. Uh, it would it would have in fact weaponized the criminal law system to create more divisions, and that was what we were worried about. It was a very legitimate um, concern. The upper house agreed with us, mm. and so Labor lost a division, and those changes were made, uh, which were really important. There was another. Um, division, which they also lost, which put a sunset clause on on uh, on allowing the police to to um, be the prosecutor in two years' time, just to see how it went. Uh, Labor had put a statutory review in place in the lower house, um, so there's going to be a bit of a look um, a, a look at this law. 
but really sort of showed a bit of, you know, what we see but which the public doesn't necessarily mm. see, which is a sense of arrogance about this government and even when people try and help them. It's a little bit like Peter Dutton trying to help uh, with after the High Court's decision mm. with regard to uh, the asylum seekers that had been detained and who were dangerous. They tried to help Labor uh, get it right. We tried to do the same thing. Unfortunately, they didn't want it, but they lost two divisions. So the first two divisions the whole year were lost uh, on the on the last sitting day evening, and then and then there were what can only be described as extraordinary and bordering on, bordering on farcical um, happenings in the upper house when it came to the racing New South Wales build. Now we uh, we were going to support. Uh, the extension of the chairman's appointment for another two years. But we thought that it was important that there was some added integrity and accountability measures um, uh, with regard to racing New South Wales. And look, it can only be said to have been an incredibly light touch. Uh, One of them was to make uh, racing New South Wales subject to the direction of the Minister for the Purposes of Accountability to Parliament. Um, Hardly radical... Um, mm. highly radical measures, making it clear that that the Minister wasn't to get involved in the day-to-day operations of racing New South Wales at all. Very light touch. And the other was to make the um, financial reports and statements of racing New South Wales subject to audit by the Auditor-General. Again, not a, a radical piece uh, of integrity and accountability given that racing New South Wales gets a share of all of the betting revenue uh, in the whole of New South Wales. So not just on racing, but if you bet on rugby league, if you bet on basketball, if you bet on uh, even elections, racing New South Wales gets a clip of the ticket. And so we thought that it was important um, that there be some public accountability for that. Now, Labor Labor opposed those amendments in the upper house. So that was their first position. They actually managed to have... Four different positions in the upper house uh, within the space of a short period of time and then within about another 40 minutes there was a fifth different position in the lower house. So I'll just go through that in some detail. So the beginning was that those amendments were opposed by Labor in the upper house. They were defeated on that. So that was their third defeat on a vote in Parliament this year, which all all in three occasions day. in one day, the last day. So Gosh. it was an appalling end for Parliament for Chris Minns uh, and the Labor Party in New South Wales. Then uh, after that amendment was made, then the Labor Minister, John Graham, moved that the bill with amendments be agreed to. So at that point he was saying, OK, we voted against those amendments, but we're now asking you to agree... Parliament to agree to support the coalition's amendments and the bill which would have extended the chairman's term. And um, John, even though we just voted against it, even though they just, which does happen, you know, sometimes you say, well, we prefer not, but okay, on balance, we we want this. So they voted for that. Uh, So he moved that, and the Labor members of Parliament in the upper house agreed to that on the voices, Mm -hmm. right? Somebody called a division which requires the vote to be recorded formally, the bells rang. Mm-hmm. The bells ring for 
longer in the upper house than they do in the lower house, so they, they ring for, for a period of time. Then towards the end of the ringing of the bells, um, and uh, I said in Parliament, clearly some faceless Labor operative had given a direction that they'd done the wrong thing. The upper house Labor MPs then scurried to the no side of the vote after just having voted yes on the voices, um, like crabs on a rock. They sort of you know <laughs> scurried across, scurried across to the other side at the last minute, and sat down on the no side. It was then pointed out by the honourable Chris Rath, who we had uh, on the podcast um, early on. Um, he then pointed out that you can't vote one way on the voices and another way on the formal vote within the standing orders um, of the upper house. It's mm. not allowed. You can't, um, as lawyers would say, you can't approbate and reprobate. Uh, you've got to, you know, you've got to take a consistent position. So the president of the upper house then ruled that that, that was correct Mm. and that Labor members then uh, had to consider their position on the no side. <laughs> so then the Labor MPs uh, did what can only be described as a walk of shame <laughs> yeah. uh, back from the no side, back to the yes side, which is where they started. So they were now agreeing to the bill with the coalition amendments um, and that's how they voted and that's how their vote was recorded. The bill now being in a different form to the way in which the bill was passed in the lower house, it had to go back to the Legislative Assembly, mm. uh, where I'm a member of, and uh, Labor had some choices in the lower house. They could either agree with what their colleagues had done in the upper house and approve the bill, or they could have changed their position again. So just bear in mind, um, they'd had four different positions in the upper house... Uh, uh, no to the amendments, yes to the bill with the amendments. Then they tried to vote no to the uh, bill with amendments. Then they were formally recorded as voting yes to the bill with amendments. Then it came down to the lower house and guess what? They decided to vote within 40 minutes. They decided to vote no again to the amendments, <laughs> uh, to the bill with the amendments. So five different positions in roughly about 45 minutes must be some sort of record, all, all in public, all, all on video, <laughs> um, with Labor flip-flop, 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 uh, all on... This is, these are people who are paid... They're professional politicians. They're not like part-time politicians like councillors. These are full-time politicians, and this is the way the, the men's Labor government operates. Mm. They, they, they really don't know what they're doing. Now, I raised an interesting point in the Legislative Assembly in my speech, which said, well, hang on, there was no caucus meeting between what the upper house Labor members did and what the lower house Labor members mm. did. And their positions were diametrically opposed. And the reason we knew that there wasn't any caucus meeting was because they were all sitting around uh, having selfies in the chamber, doing all their Christmas posts. They were clearly not having any caucus meetings mm. between... Uh, when the message came from the upper house as to what they had done and when it came to the lower house. So I pointed out, under the Labor Party rules, if you vote against a caucus position, 
you're automatically expelled from the party. That's <laughs> that that's the difference between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, where people can vote on their conscience in the Liberal Party and still say a member of the party, they can cross the floor. But in the Labor Party, you can't. So I raise the quite legitimate concern, who's going to be kicked out of the Labor Party? Is it all their members of the upper house or is it all their members of the lower house? Because there's no way that one set can vote one way and 40 minutes with no caucus meeting, the other set votes the other way. So just quite extraordinary. I mean, on so many different levels, incredible. That is what absolute shambles for the Labor Party. It just screams a government that is distracted out of touch and just totally incompetent. Well, and, and look, you know, there, there's been, well, you know, when we do in our last podcast, the next one after this, when we do a final wrap up for the year, we'll talk about, mm. we'll talk about the bumbling, uh, the, the bumbling year that was, but uh, quite extraordinary. Wow. And, and then, and then there was one other quite extraordinary matter. And that was that one thing that was passed in the last week uh, of the sitting term was um, Labor's changes to the Industrial Relations Act. Now, they had the numbers. Uh, we weren't able to um, uh, stop or change any of these measures. Um, uh, they had the support of the crossbench. But during the course of the Industrial Relations Minister speech, Sophie Kotsis, um, she said that... The bill was creating a new industrial court and that that was a great thing. And she said the reason, one of the reasons it was a great thing was because the Supreme Court currently hears uh, industrial legal matters and she described the Supreme Court as being legalistic, slow and imposing a costly process on workers, public sector employers and unions that are seeking resolution to basic questions around compliance with awards, proper payment of wages and attention of unlawful industrial action and the proper operation of contracts with workers. Now, that's what she said um, in, uh, in Parliament. And that caused the Supreme Court to do something which in my 36 years as a lawyer, I've never seen done before. And that is for the Supreme Court to issue a rebuttal statement uh, in respect of those statements made by Sophie Kotsis. So I think now Sophie Kotsis is entering into the hall of shame of ministers within uh, the men's Labor government. And the Supreme Court pointed out the factual errors in what mm. uh, the minister had said and and... Uh, they pointed out that over the last five years, the volume of industrial work in the Supreme Court of New South Wales has averaged only 10 hearing days a year, um, that the matters have been dealt with uh, quickly, mm. uh, efficiently and uh, cost-effectively. And um, Sophie Kotsis had also said to Parliament uh, that... The Supreme Court judges that deal with matters in the Supreme Court, she said, do not often have an industrial law background. Now, that was, in effect, a direct attack on yeah. the three judges that mainly deal with those 10 sitting days of industrial matters, not a lot of work, 
mm. not a lot of work uh, in industrial matters, but dealt with by three judges. So the three judges that deal with them uh, are Justice Michael Walton, who was formerly a very senior judge of the industrial court before the coalition uh, abolished it. Uh, Justice Walton was appointed by a previous Labor government. So it's not mm. as if... Uh, uh, no, and and he, as a barrister, he specialised in industrial law, right? So a fair bit of experience that. And, and 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 his family have have close connections with the trade union movement. His son is a former national secretary of the Australian Workers Union. So um, <laughs> strange that they would be attacking him uh, either as to his integrity, competence, or impartiality. Mm. Justice Stephen Rothman. Um, again, also with extensive industrial uh, experience. He was one of the other judges uh, that deal with their matters. Uh, another judge appointed to the Supreme Court by a former Labor government, so no one could suggest that he was somehow... Um, anti-worker, anti-worker, anti-Labor. Anti-worker, anti-Labor or, you know, uh, all of these judges... Utmost integrity mm. um, couldn't question their, you know, their partiality mm. or their competence. Mm. Uh, and then uh, acting justice Monica Schmidt, who also used to be a judge of the former industrial court, um, and promoted to the Supreme Court by a former Labor government. So um, uh, curious, uh, cu- curious, uh, curious comments. Uh, both as to uh, their competence and their capacity to deal with these words, this sort of work in the mm. Supreme Court, really um, extraordinary. And so when those factual errors were pointed out by the Supreme Court in, in their uh, one-plus-page statement uh, issued publicly, uh, Chris Min said, I back in my minister. So... Uh, bear right. in mind, bear in mind, the Supreme Court's core business is to get facts right, and they have issued a public statement saying that the minister got her facts wrong, and instead of Chris Minns railing in uh, Minister Cotsis like he's railed in Joe Halen and and um, Yasmin Catley when they've made mistakes, Chris Minns hundred percent supported her. He said she was hundred percent right. If she's 100% right, that means the Supreme Court must be 100% wrong. And I think this is really disturbing that we actually now have a Premier who doesn't respect the institutions of our state. I mean, the Supreme Court is central to the separation of powers, uh, you know, critical to integrity in government, and yet we have Chris Minns, the Premier of New South Wales effectively calling them lies, yeah. uh, which, is, which is just quite extraordinary. And, and can I just say that, that one of the things that has been commented to me quite a bit about the transition of power was the incredibly gracious speech that Dominic Perrottet gave on election night, acknowledging um, uh, the loss and wishing um, in the interests of New South Wales the new government, all the best. And a lot of people have said to me, well, that's such a contrast to America Mm. where 
um, you know, um, uh, you know, there was a con- contest about the veracity of the last presidential election that continues on, attacks on their Supreme Court and so on. A lot of people said, isn't it great that we live in the country that we live in? But Chris Minns's attack on the Supreme Court uh, and his minister's attack on the Supreme Court, I mean, it's, it's positively uh, like all the worst aspects of, of the American yeah. um, political system. It's quite disturbing, really. I mean, even for Sophie Kotzes to, in the first place, attack the Supreme Court like that in her speech in Parliament, and then for them to come back and correct her errors, and then for, for Minns to go, no, nope, sorry, my minister's right. Like, what is Sophie Kotzes's background in, in, in law? Does she have one? Well, and, and, and I can see now, just reflecting on it, the... The three judges who dealt with those industrial matters were effectively defamed under parliamentary privilege by the Minister yeah. for Industrial Relations. So I can see why the Supreme Court did the extraordinary and issued a correctional statement. But mm. uh, for the Premier to double down on it uh, is is quite extraordinary. And yeah. and can I just point out, the first law officer in New South Wales, the Attorney-General, traditionally the Attorney-General is supposed to defend our court system mm. from unwarranted attacks, completely silent. That is that is actually really disturbing. Going and attacking the Supreme Court is shocking. It's like American populism. It, it is. Um, it, it, it is terrible. So, so that was, that was, that all happened. On uh, one day. That, that all happened. Uh, on one that day. That is shambolic. So that, that's the state of New South Wales under Chris Minns's, uh premiership. Um, I, think, uh, I think people will be understandably shocked yeah. to hear all those events and to hear how chaotic uh, the Labor Party really is. A lot of people, I mean, one of the reasons for this podcast is to actually lift the lid mm. on some of these things because mm. often they're not reported in the media uh, that... That Supreme Court statement has not been reported anywhere in the media, um, but I think it's a really important thing to bring to our listeners' attention. Totally. Um, so, Freya, that was that was the extraordinary last day um, of Parliament this year. We're now back next year. It should be pointed out again that although we had over twenty weeks uh, of sitting in uh, in our last sort of full year non-COVID and non-election um, interrupted uh, as a coalition government, Chris Minns has gone from 21 weeks sitting to only 15 next year in 2024. Um, so there'll be, uh, I, I mean, I hope this is not podcast-driven um, uh, <laughs> because uh, we obviously give up a, a wrap-up of, of the week in Parliament mm. um, and there, there, there are going to be, uh, fewer sitting weeks, which I think is terrible in terms of integrity of government, yeah. transparency of government um, and democracy within our state. Mm, yeah, very concerning. Well, uh, thanks for joining us this week, Freya, and uh, we look forward to our last podcast next week, which will also be the last podcast for the year. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters, and I look forward to you joining us again next week.